Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Well, good morning, Donald. Morning. I see the beautiful sunlight outside behind you in the window there. It's awesome. And this morning we have with us uh, Daniel Bovia. Daniel is on a Greek island. Yes. Basically, when I look outside my window, all I see is olive trees. This morning we are talking about networks in Europe from 1984 to 2009. Yeah, it's about 25 years worth of networking. You know, it's a lot. So why don't we just begin at the beginning, Daniel? How did you get into networking, I suppose, is a good place to start. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, what happened in Europe, uh, I guess, is really very similar to what happened in the United States. The need for networking came from the academic and scientific world where, you know, there were computers around, fairly large computers that started really becoming popular also in the uh, scientific environment. So scientists needed access to computing uh, resources because there were no personal computers back then, only large mainframes or medium mainframes. So how do you get access to these people to get into the data? Well, you set up your, your little network, local area networks or whatever with this, uh, you know, what used to be called a uh, teletype terminals, you know, TTY, where you just type and, and then get answers from the processor or the main computer. And back then, what we are talking about here in the period like uh, early 80s, we are talking about mainly in the scientific world in Europe, the Digital Equipment Corporation, uh, DEC, VAX machines. DEC was later became compact and then was bought by HP anyway. Not many people probably remember the DEC brand. And always kind of medium, small machines, but still can accommodate hundreds of users. Then we had the large IBM systems, you know, uh, the uh, MVS or the uh, VM uh, virtual machine uh, systems, like the 370s uh, family of products. And people use also these more fancy uh, full screen terminals, like the, the 3270, with, uh, you know, this black, black background and green lettering. They were connected through little control units, and then you had to connect the control units to the mainframe either remotely or, or directly if they were just outside the data center. And the way to do that was just as back then was to buy, you know, uh, little modem connections for single terminals out there. I'm talking about dial-up connections uh, over the public telephone network from like 300 bit per second to 1200 maximum back then. If you had a remote cluster of users, like you had a large uh, institute somewhere far away from the computer data center, then you will lease kind of a, a fixed telephone network that would be dedicated to you. And then you would attach a couple of uh, synchronous modems like 2.4 to 9.6 kilobits per second uh, things. And then these people will be able to get to the data center and start using the, the data and exchange data among themselves. So basically that was the first step. And then data centers started to connect it to other data centers in the same kind of uh, environment. I got my first uh, job at the uh, Italian version of the NSF. It's called the National Resource Council. National Resource Council in Italy had several data centers in Milano, in Pisa, in Rome, uh, in the south of Italy, and they were connected through these 9.6 kilobit lines. And when I got the job, I didn't really know much about 
networking because I so fast. I, That's I, such yes, fast, high speed. Fast, 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 amazingly fast. For the time, it was mind-boggling, and I didn't know much about networks. But uh, I, I, I'm a physicist as a as a for education, so. I got a job at this uh, this CNR Institute for Cosmic Physics, which had a fairly large mainframe computer. We had well, at the time I think the first one was with four megabyte of central memory. Four megabyte of central memory serving about I don't know three four hundred uh, researchers around there. And so uh, this data, you know, I started learning about you know the network and stuff and. Um, I mean, really, with the soldering machine, and you know, we use this little. Remember the the uh, standard uh, 25 pin port for a serial connection uh, called RS232. You had to to solder in the the cable in the two, three, a DB, four and a DB25, exactly. yeah. And yeah, basically you only needed four cables. In fact, not 25 pins, but anyway, you know, one for transmit, one for receive, and that was it. And among these things, I started learning there was something larger around uh, because part of the management duty I was given in this data center was to run a couple of virtual machines dedicated to the network. And I was, after a few months I was there, I started noticing that there was something being received by one of these virtual machines. Back then there was no mailbox, was something in the IBM system called the reader. You would go every morning and check your reader and you would find files there. And in this particular machine, there was receiving on a monthly basis this file. So I went to the, the head of the data center and said, what the heck is this? And then the guy said, oh yeah, I forgot to mention, we are part of a European and uh, also beyond that, uh, American uh, academic network called Bitnet and Earn, and those are the routing tables. So you're supposed to take these files and install them in this machine. And these files basically will, will tell the process where to send a particular file to a user at a node located on the network, which is not connected directly to us. So what is the next step? That was the so-called store and forward technology. Basically, each node will know to which other node it was connected to, to be able to reach a node that was farther away. And they will, the data will transit from your data center to that data center will be stored there until the next link was becoming available to send it to the final destination. So the idea was that all these links were being basically up and running all the time and then data would just flow across these various uh, nodes. And uh, this was possible, this was considered legal by the PTTs as long as all the data center connected were from the same organization. When you start connecting data centers from different organizations, then they are stepping in a more delicate area because back then the PTTs had the monopoly in Europe. I mean, this is something you never had in the United States, but it was each country had a public-owned uh, telephone provider and telecommunication providers, and they were the only one authorized to transfer data either via voice or data across the network. They were the owner of the infrastructure. They were the only one able to sell it. Everything else was illegal. The problem is that the technology was going much faster than they were keeping up with their regulations and stuff, particularly in a country like Italy where I was. So when I had to move a data center from one location to another, and most of my users were in the old building, I needed a, a new one, a, a two megabit line. And technically speaking, they knew how to do it, but there was no tariff uh, in their books to how much to charge for it. So I had to fight for months eventually to be able to use this line and then pay the right price because at first they said, oh, that's okay. 
two megabit means we can put up 32 telephone lines on it. So we're going to charge you as if you have 32 circuits. And I said, that's not the way it works. There must be some economy of scale because, you know, it was, it was incredibly expensive. Anyway, the funny part was to discover that there was this network outside there. And I, just by typing a message uh, on my computer, I could communicate with some guy in Chicago or, you know, or in Japan even, or in Canada. And that really opened for me the entire world of the network and networking. And then I got more and more interested in this. So the network in Europe at the time that was connecting these data centers mainly was using an IBM protocol that was called NGE Network Job Entry, which was based on a protocol that uh, IBM used to transfer data from a computer to another called uh, uh, remote spooling. This is prior to SNA. Basically, SNA came in uh, right around the same time, uh, but uh, they were able to transport uh, this remote job entry uh, concept over to SNA. SNA was at the lower layer. RSCS was at the application layer. If you think of the layers in terms of the OSI 7 layers thing, it was very high up in the layers. So basically, I started learning about these things and I got interested and I realized that, in fact, there was a big push behind this by IBM in the sense that it was an IBM protocol and there was already a network based on this protocol active in the United States, what's called BitNet. BitNet, you may remember, maybe you're too young to have even ever used that. <laughs> I don't know that, but it was basically a network connecting all the data centers of the old university United States that had an IBM computer. But not only, because there were several different emulations based for other kinds of computers, whether they be uh, digital VAX computers or Unix workstations, Sun workstations. They were all emulating this uh, RSCS, uh, you know, uh, NGE protocol, and they were able to communicate. So IBM had a problem in entering the, the scientific market uh, because they've been dedicating themselves mostly to the juicy components uh, like, you know, insurance companies, banks selling big mainframe computers. Mainframe computers were really expensive at the time and very large. Uh, they needed, you know, like a tennis court size uh, room to fit a computer that had four to eight megabit uh, central memory. So, so this digital equipment corporation was very successful in selling their equipment to the universities because it was much smaller, smaller mainframes and much cheaper. So IBM had to try to get back into the market. So they came up with this idea, uh, emulating the concept in the United States by offering and pushing this network to expand by saying at the university, if you buy a, an IBM mainframe, we're going to give free of charge to you a leased telephone network to the nearest computer center, which is already on the network, and you will become part of the club and your, your scientists will be able to communicate with the rest of the world. This was very successful. It's an initiative that started in around 84, and the plan was to run it for three, four years, uh, offering lease lines and support to the, to the data centers to connect to each other. And basically, the requirement was whoever wanted to be part of the network had to just only accept to be able to uh, accept to another university behind them may connect to their data center so to create a backbone basically and that happened it took off very quickly everybody loved it and at the point in time around 85 ibm said okay this is getting out of hand uh you have to create your own organization officially uh, ibm cannot just keep sponsoring this so they pushed and they identified in each country in europe a main responsible person, which was normally the guy in charge of the national network. And they created the EARN Association, which was uh, officially registered, uh, I think was what, 80, 
yeah, February 85, Earn was officially registered as a, as a non-profit company in France. Uh, and then uh, the entire thing, you know, got somewhat more passed from IBM into the hands of the academic research community. What does EARN stand for? Why was EARN? EARN stands for European Academic Research Network. And it was basically, from the protocol perspective, was exactly the same thing as BitNet or the Canadian version of BitNet, which is called uh, NetNorth. So users would see just one single network. We don't have any concept that they were America or Europe. They would just connect, have a user ID at node, and there was no domain name after that. It was like XYZ at the name of, of the nodes in the IBM protocol, and that was it. It was a basically a flat domain name space. And uh, there were many, many new computers trying to emulate that to the point that in around the, let's say, 90s, there were more than 50% of the computer connected to this network were not IBM computers anymore, were digital equipment, VAX computers. We had about 30% IBM with the VM operating system. We were about 10% Unix systems. And the rest, there were like plethora of 20 different operating systems with various emulation programs that will allow them to be connected to the network. So the network was offering services as file transfer. You, you could just send your data from one node to another. Uh, this was very important, for instance, for people that were working, uh, physicists working on scientific experiments at the CERN uh, accelerator. You know, they would run the experiment, collect the data, and then the data would be made available through the network uh, to researchers worldwide to be able to analyze the data and, and, and so forth and so forth. As an emulation, as a, a kind of a, a subset of that, uh, Rice University wrote a software that would emulate email services using this file transfer protocol. So uh, people using these, these systems, uh, IBM or VAX or whatever, had this, uh, this interface that would simulate a, an email, you know, from, to, subject, and then text. And then uh, the, the Rice mail would just package it into a file and send it over to the final destination node. One of the first very interesting and, and, and thing, uh, important things that was also available was, was called, the, back then was called interactive messaging. Interactive messaging was like you could type on your screen, on your, on your keyboard, on a, on a terminal, tell user ID at node ID, blah, 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 blah. And the guy will see this message popping up in the screen and he could reply. And that's basically the precursor of what became the famous AOL instant message service. And that's because plenty of people that used to work in this network and IBM actually ended up creating the first architecture of the AOL uh, systems. But we're going to touch upon that later. Anyway, so we do file transfer. Uh, and there was also some remote database access. There was a server mirroring, caching. But the fact is that there was no central management for the network it was like uh, services were offered by the participants, not by the network itself as an institution, as, a, as an organization. There was not an OC that was keeping an eye on whether the nodes were working or not. Everybody, every operator at the data center should check every morning that all the links were up. And at that time, like you mentioned, SNA was there. So most of these links were actually at the network layer were managed by SNA. So if you had SNA, they would make sure that the link was up and it would fall down. We'd just bring it up again and so forth and so forth. The fact is that 
it was not an isolated network as such because the internet was already there in the United States back then. So there were a number of gateways uh, called uh, back then were called interbit uh, gateways where you can send mails actually from an ER node to an internet node going through one of these gateways that was using, you know, was able to translate the NGE uh, adder whatever into RFCA to two protocols and just send it over to other networks. There were several networks on it. There was a, a digital equipment corporation network uh, that was dedicated to the high energy physics. You, you may find it in literature called, uh, referred as HAPNET, H-A-P, high energy physics network. Uh, there were mainly VAX machines. There was other other network in Europe uh, based on Unix, the Unix to Unix, UUCP, UUNet later. So all these networks were connected through gateways. But to give you a volume, an idea of how much traffic was that, the entire European network, and I'm talking about like 20 countries here, all the data was flowing from and to the United States over a single 4.8 kilobit line in the 80s and early 90s would turn into a 9.6 kilobit line, which is like today, this is just ridiculous, you know, if you think about it. But back then, it was just text messages, small mails, or large data files that took hours to transfer. But it was, it was very well organized. I mean, uh, it was really a cooperative model. Everybody was doing his effort. Every country had one or two engineers. That we were organizing uh, on two, three times a year a technical meeting where all these people would get together. And there was a group called Earn Tech that was pretty large. And, and then a lot of debates went around how to improve this, how to improve that. Later, it was changed a little bit the organization by the Earn board of directors, decided to reorganize the technical groups. So we had a group called Network Operation Group, which was uh, basically each counter sent one and one only representative to this group, uh, decided by the the director of the national network. Then we created some ad hoc project groups, like we had a, a routing project group to find out there were you know, routing problems. We had, with time, since we started having problems with the performance, we had the performance evaluation project groups. And there was just a bunch of so-called volunteers. I mean, people who had their main job at their data center managing their computer and their networks and but once uh, every now and then we'd get together and we had the first mailing list where we exchange you know uh, discussions and comments and it was working very well earn throughout his life had actually two offices with staff uh, one was based in uh, near Paris. At the beginning, it was called Paris, obviously, but there was no space in Paris. So it was moved in a campus of a university outside Paris. And that had, like, at the maximum, we were like five, six people. And then I had another important office in Amsterdam for it was called the Earn OSI office. And I'm going to go to that back then because there was a problem with the, with the protocol. Anyway, the task of, this, of the staff, especially at the office where I was based in Paris, we were collecting from each country each month the information about new nodes to be added to the network, nodes that were deleted from the network. And we were putting all this data together. The Americans from Bitnet will send us the same data for the US part. We will combine everything together in a file called BitEarn nodes. And this file was then used to generate the tables that will then redistributed to everybody. So every month, manually, somebody would go through the pain of collecting all the node no names data to which node they were connected to and generate the routing table that will be redistributed. These were the things that I found the first time in 85 back when, you know. So, so this is the routing table, DNS or both? No, no, there was no DNS whatsoever because back then, 
internally we were just in one flat space there was no there was no ip address there was no there was just a mainframe name and a, and, and and the next mainframe connected to it okay so you 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 can create a network by knowing which node is connected to which other node and so forth and so forth right you generate that so you were running manual spf Pretty much, exactly, exactly. There was a process created by some IBM technical guy that started the entire thing at the beginning, and we were collecting all this data, we were generating the routing tables, and like I mentioned, there were gateways to other networks. In fact, yes, we had a file that was called domain names, which was similar somewhat to a sort of a DNS thing, but not, not, not exactly. But the domain names file contained the information necessary to allow the mail exchange between Earn and BitNet to the various different domain-style networks that were connected to it. Basically, if you wish, the Earn BitNet uh, support of domain names style was accomplished by using programs that reference domain routing information tables which map domain-style name to network node gateways so you will know where to go to send to that specific network. And there was a specific node. There were several of them called Interbit, like I mentioned. So that would allow you know, exchange the, the, uh, the rice mail with the RFC 822 uh, ARPA standard for, for mail back then. So a few things we had to do back then because the thing was growing big is that we needed tools to generate the routing table more and more efficiently now. The Americans in Bitnet, they had their own routing table generator. In Europe, uh, they decided they wanted to write their own. So we got a guy from an institution in Germany to write this routing table. And then I was there at this office, freshly arrived, early 90, and they tell me, okay, we have to figure out which of the two systems works better, you know, because using two different engines to generate routing tables in the same network not necessarily a good idea. Yeah, it's going to cause a routing loop at some point, yeah. Exactly. So I, I dived into that, and in fact, and I, I found out that if not used properly, we could generate loops because one program was using a certain logic to break the ties. When you have two ways to go from one node A to node B, uh, you can go either route A or route B, and then one program would say, go to route A, the other would say, go to route B, and so eventually the things will keep looping around. So we eventually uh, agreed to use just one routing uh, table generator, and that was, uh, that was it, basically. That solved the problem. The other thing is that there was a lot of users. I mean, it was really very, very popular. People started really saturating everything. So files were piling up. Basically, if you are on a core node, a node which is important, receive data from several nodes, and you have to push it out, for instance, to another country because you are a national node, you will see this the files start piling up during the day, you know, and then will go through only at the pace that your modem will allow you to go through until uh, if you don't have enough time during the day, they will just pile up for the next day and so forth and so forth. So not good. So what we did, and I did, I, I created a little program that was running on the main nodes of the network in Europe. And every 10 minutes, I would uh, make some tests. I would just send out to the nearest node a small file about, back then we were counting not in bytes, but in records. A record was, you know, the <laughs> funny thing, was a line could contain up to 80 characters, strangely reminding to the punch cards. We can only put 80 characters in a punch card in a line. That was exactly the, the IBM system. So uh, we would send out small files of 50 records, larger file of 1,000 or plus records because they were going to two different queue system, queuing system. And then I would send out an interactive map messages to the nearest node to verify if the node was up or not, because we didn't have any mean. So, so 80 is an 80. Yeah, 80 is an odd number, right? Yeah, 
80 is not a number. Yeah. Binary. And this is binary, right? No, no. Just 80 characters. Of oh, 80 characters. Okay. Okay. In, on a punch card, you can put, you, you had 80 columns and you can put an instruction that was 80 column long. That was the origin of the 80 number. And no one will ever need more than 80. I'm sure somebody said that. <laughs> no, of course. No, no, not in a line. No, not. So basically, I started collecting this data. And a few very interesting came out, you know, like I could collect statistics about basically availability of network nodes, because if you send a tell message, tell operator by you uh, to, to tell my process on the other side, the respond, the process doesn't respond, means that maybe at the network layer, the link is up, but at the application layer, there's no traffic going through, which means from a traffic perspective, the node is not working, it's considered to be considered not available. And we ended up even uh, creating a, what we call the Network Performance Index, an NPI. I put together kind of in a sort of, you know, heuristical way all this data. I was collecting, you know, time to deliver a 50, uh, a 50 records file, time to deliver a thousand record files, amount of time that the node was up, mixed it all together and create a number. And this number will give you the, a sense of the quality of the service we were providing through this network. The higher the number, the worst it was, of course, and, and the, 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 the ideal number should be zero because zero means no queues, interactive messages immediately sent through and, and everything else. And we use that for some time to really gauge where links needed to be upgraded, where, you know, uh, where there was a problem with the, with the availability of links and so forth and so forth. And it went on for, for a few years. Other things we did at the Earn office, we, they started creating a, a quarterly magazine uh, called Earnest. And, and we were giving updates to the network uh, users and everybody else, so what the network was doing, how many nodes were there, and how many new nodes, how many old nodes, and stuff like that. And that actually, that work really took over uh, more seriously with time because there were plenty of services coming up on this network and, of course, on the internet. You know, there were servers like Veronica or Tricol or stuff that you don't hear even anymore that were becoming available. And so we put together a, a sort of a manual for users to use it that was called the Guide to Network Resource Tools. This even became an RFC. If you go now on the, on the, uh, on the uh, IATF database and you check RFC 1580, that's, a, that's the manual we wrote back then for allowing people and tell people how to access the various services and databases on the network. EARN organized a number of network conferences, started uh, IBM sponsored the first one in Berlin in 86. Everybody got basically it only to play for their trip and then everything was, uh, was, was offered there on site. And then Earn to cover itself, the organization. We had every year there was a different network conference somewhere. We had one in Turkey, 88, in, in Greece, 89, in Ireland, in 90, and so forth and so forth. And a lot of people were showing up. It was really the, the flowering of the network, but still, we are still talking about the ivory tower here, okay? So only scientists, academic people, uh, or, or even, even corporations that had though a scientific research center were connected to the network. And the problems were, the first problem started in appearance, you know, mainly incredibly expensive international telephone circuits. Uh, you could not buy a circuit uh, from France to, to England or to Germany without paying the double of the actual cost because the PTTs had their own borders and they all wanted to be paid. So as long as you were within a country, you order a line from city to city, you go to the PTT, you say how much it is, you pay that seat. When you want to buy a line back then from uh, London to Paris, 
you had to go and buy half of the line to the to the UK PTT, you know, and the other half to the French PTT, and so the, the and they wanted the same amount of money, so they, they the cost was the double. And there's cross border. There's all sorts of cross border PTT issues there with politics and other stuff like that. Yeah, and those are trunk lines, which are actually rarer than in circuit in in CO lines as well. So they're even more expensive. Yes, but you know, basically the trick was that they were just telephone lines that we became instead of at the at the central uh, station of the PTTs, instead of allowing the switch to click depending on the numbers you dial, they just blocked the connection like as the number is con- constantly being dialed, and then you have your list line that the way they did it. Uh, the other major problem that came out back then was that uh, OSI, thanks God, you know, uh, open system interconnect concept was invented in Europe, and uh, and that was the beginning of the of the what so called the the protocol wars. Uh, basically, they were saying what you're doing here is not possible. I'm sorry, but you're doing something illegal. The PTTs at the consortium called the SEPT, and they came to us and said, you are not authorized to transport data, third-party data from one country to the other. This is our job. This is our monopoly. You know, you're leasing a line from country A to country B. You're transporting data, which is not your data because this comes from some other guy in your country. They send it to some other guy to other country. So illegal. Imagine nowadays, you know, back then everybody was already using email, file transfer, instant messages and stuff. And it's like, you know, imagine the internet today, they come to you and say, ah, sorry, what you're doing is not legal. You have to stop doing this now. And you have to use this new other thing that we are just right now designing off the, off the table board. It's called OSI and you should use this instead. By the way, it's not ready yet quite, but it would be soon. But in the meanwhile, you have to stop anyway. You know, imagine go to your users and say, sorry, email from tomorrow doesn't work anymore because you have to use something else, but it's not there yet. It's like going to your car dealership and they say, no, sorry, you can't buy any of those old cars. You've got to wait until we get this new one designed. It's going to be a couple of years. Too bad that you have to go to the grocery store. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, and, in the, and these people had no clue what email was because they never used it. There was, they went to a point that the European Commission went to a point to sponsor a workshop of representatives from the various European academic networks that happened in uh, May 85 in Luxembourg. They paid for everything. The European Commission paid for everything. And at the end, the result of this meeting was, uh, let's create another European association called RARE. Back then, uh, for the uh, European Commission, uh, the trick was to to create an, a, an acronym that had this, an English sound name, but using French words. Uh, RARE stands for Réseau Académique et Recherche Européen. So Network for Academic, say but in French, right? And then uh, when, you, when, it's, when you put it in a, an acronym to A, it becomes RARE, R-A-R-E. So, you know, they created this association and the purpose of this association was to convince everybody to go as I. And, and make sure that everybody will go to SI and that EARN in particular should forget about the NGE-IBM protocol, which in Europe is not good because it's an American protocol, of course, and move to OSI. And of course, the rationale of the old standards is always good, right? Ideally, if everything 
uh, everybody has the same set of communication protocols, there is no need for gateways. It's easier to connect. Everybody just is plug and play like this. Too bad that none of these products was available because they went also to the manufacturers, to IBM, to Digital Equipment Corporation, to uh, Honeywell and said, now you have to write this new communication protocol. It's called OSI, the stack, seven layers, and start building products like that because that's the way the market needs it. So you, on one hand, you had like something that was proprietary, closed, but working, but with many emulations. So it was actually open, in fact, and not closed. And on the other one, a kind of design on a table board that says, this is the way it's supposed to be. Let's go ahead and do it. So Earn back then had a lot of pressure uh, because really the, the board of director had this, this meeting with the SEPT and the PTTs and they said, no, no, what you're doing here legally, you have to stop and you have to use OSI and you cannot use the network. But we have a public network based on one of these protocols called X25. X25 is a fantastic protocol, is a packet protocol. And by the way, we're going to charge you by the volume. So if you talk louder, it's going to cost more. That's the key here. <laughs> exactly. And, we, and, and, you, and you're going to use, you're gonna use uh, uh, X400 as your email uh, process, and you're going to use as uh, the network layer X25. Little problem, maximum speed theoretically ever would be 2 megabit per link, no more, because X25 is limited to megabit. And Erna had, had to kind of to react somewhat. So there was a meeting, I remember, it happened in, in Perugia, beautiful city in the center of Italy, in September 87. All the Earn people sent their, their people, their technical people, they knew a little bit about OSI. And we all sat together for two days discussing and debating. And eventually, this Earn migration to OSI plan was created. Now, like I said, Two major problems. Number one, price. We calculated back then that the earned traffic we had at the time, okay, in, in 87, if moved on to the public X25 network, would cost between five and ten times more <laughs> out of the blue, right? Because we were, you know, we were start charged by volume at that point, not anymore by lease lines on a flat uh, monthly fee. You know, regardless how much data you transfer, you pay the same. No, that was that was volume based. Second problem was performance because this public using network, they, the public network they wanted us to use, was not based on faster link than 9.6 kilobits everywhere, where we already had some two megabit lines somewhere. So maybe they said we will install soon 64 kilobit lines, so it will be better. But so it was going to be 10 times more expensive and and 10 times lower, or you know, than than we were using. But still. You know, politics is politics. So uh, there was some hope in the sense that it was not desperate. In 87, maybe you have heard uh, talking about the Green Paper. The European Commission came up with a Green Paper, called for the European countries to separate the national service provider from the national policymaker, require competition for the telecommunication terminal market and the market for non-basic telecommunication services. Basically, it was the beginning of the deregulation, if you wish. However... This paper was not really pushing it all the way through. The PTTs still were supposed to run the, the backbone infrastructure. They claimed that since they were public utility, it was a natural monopoly that could not be changed. It was, it was kind of a, a big fight that went on for several years. But still, there was some indication that there was an opening somewhere at the end of the tunnel. So. Earn went into this process of trying to move to OSI, study how to do it, and so forth and so forth. But at the end, you know, nobody really believed it would happen. Anyway, Earn opened in 89 an office in Amsterdam called the Earn OSI Network Operations Center. The idea was to test these OSI protocols with real traffic. 
they, there was a lot of heavy sponsorship from Digital Equipment Corporation that provided the equipment, of course. We had uh, some big X25 switches offered by a company called uh, Northern Telecom. IBM offered the development of a similar X25 switch that would work over SNA, of course, because IBM was everything was SNA, right? And, um, and they started putting together a few of these nodes in some, in some uh, pilot data centers that accepted to participate the, in the experiment. And they started uh, sending data through this uh, X25 network. They, they actually created a, a private X25 background because the the uh, public one was too expensive and was too uh, too slow, and they accepted that at uh, the point in time. The service was not really working; <laughs> like it was very slow. It was very it was very difficult to manage the NGE OSI gateway over the X25 interconnect. And then, you know, by the 90s already, IP had found its way to the European market, and then poof, it came out. So. Services were migrating over IP, you know, TCP/IP networks. People were, you know, users were attracted to services over TCP/IP network. Ripe, I think you had a, a conversation with Daniel Karenberg and Miriam Kühne. They talked to you about Ripe. Ripe was created. Uh, the first meeting was in '89, and I started attending these Ripe meetings from 1990 when I joined the Earn office in Paris. And that was when really things started moving along in the right direction for everybody. In particular, in the United States at uh, Princeton University, they wrote a, a protocol convert whereby it would let you run the NG protocol on top of uh, IP. It was called VMNet. So uh, you basically could put an NG connection link over a, an underlying TCP IP uh, line. So you could basically mix internet connections to these urn bitnet networks uh, at, the, at, the, at the physical layer. And that basically this opened for urn the possibility to share the same physical circuits used by the users of other organizations that were connecting using TCP IP to the internet. And since we had this light at the end of the tunnel, uh, we managed to convince the board of director of urn to try experimenting with that. And we started, and then uh, there was no stopping it, basically. At the, end. the entire OSI thing went down the drain. Nobody wanted to talk about it anymore. And the first, the first IP backbone, in fact, was created early in, uh, in, uh, in 92 and in 91. There was more and more demand for IP circuits. And eventually, this, uh, the guy of the academic network in the Netherlands called Surfnet came up with the idea and said, look, there is a plan for, this, for the community, for the European Community Commission to create a backbone uh, for, the, for the academic, et cetera, et cetera, but they are still working on it. Let's put together resources in the various countries. We buy, uh, we share some existing links, we buy new ones. We create this IP uh, kind of kernel backbone infrastructure to run internet IP services and ISO, you know, OSI, CLNS, pilot the connectionless network services that is the base of the OSI protocols. Together on the same network, we combine and enhance existing facilities. We, we work it only for, for one year, okay, because we need something. And then by then, uh, the other network will be ready and then everybody will be happy. So there was a meeting where all the European uh, networks got together, the various national networks was organized in Amsterdam Funnily enough, in a fantastic location, which is the zoo in Amsterdam, the zoo has a, some old building 
that were used for conferences and, and speeches and lectures. So we had the zoo outside, the animals outside, and the network animals inside in just the same cage. And for an entire day, there was debate where to put the network and, and how to connect the various links, etc., etc. Well, I mean, after all, you already had the equipment cages there. Exactly. Everything was ready. So basically, this e-bone was called e-bone, European backbone, e-bone 92, was to be a multi-protocol high-bandwidth pan-European backbone for kind of connecting networks, right? What was the speed of a high speed at that? Two megabit was the one of the highest of the backbone. And then we decided to have oh, at least all two megabit. Now, the point was that there was a, a debate about where to put these main nodes of, of Ebon, right? So they created the memorandum of understanding of Ebon was calling for two group, technical groups, the Ebon action team, the architect of the network, and the Ebon operation team, the group that were manage this backbone eventually. And things were going slow and we're going slow. And, and I needed these, these lines because Earn was really saturated and I really need to use these lines. So I called for a meeting in December 91 in Paris. And I said, guys, we have to sit together, the technical guys, and decide where the backbone is going to be. So they all came, very attracted by Paris before Christmas, you know, I know, a good chance to do shopping. So they all came and we sat together. And in the morning was like, it was war, you know, like, I had the feeling that people consider, you know, like, uh, it's like, who's got the big backbone, you know? It's like showing, I'm showing you this, you show you mine, you know, and, and this is what, you know, the big guns all showed up. There was the I, IBM guy was there too, because IBM was putting a lot of money in the deal also. And they did. The, the entire morning was wasted yelling at each other. And then in the afternoon after lunch, where I, I organized lunch in nearby uh, Brasserie, I made sure that they were drinking wine. <laughs> And uh, and in the afternoon, everything was peaceful. Everything was all friends, you know. And then and then we came out. We came out with two different alternative backbones, uh, you know, architectures. Uh, one with four nodes, most in the north of Europe, like was was Amsterdam, uh, Switzerland, the CERN, uh, one in Stockholm, and one in Germany. And then another one with five nodes that were more expensive, but five nodes because we wanted to have a ring, of course, to have the backbone kind of reliable in case of one of the link fails. And then I proposed to have this additional link in, in France because the urn key backbone node that was transferring everything to the United States was based in France. So I needed that node to be on the backbone. Otherwise, you know, the entire thing was fake. And they accepted these two alternatives and we sent it out to the management team that was the guys that were supposed to pay the bills. And after a week, they said, ah, what's no brainer, guys? Thank you. We have the five nodes backbone. That's fine. So the first European internet backbone was created back then, thanks to some good French wine. Yeah? Amazing, isn't it? When you come to it, it's, it's amazing. So anyway, Thanks to that, then, Earn uh, was able to move, and I mean, thanks to this backbone and to the VMNet uh, product from Princeton University, Earn was able to move its, its connections over to the Ebon, most of them. And we created what was called the Earn, uh, Earn Regionalization Plan, or, or, or uh, was called also Earn 2, because BitNet had turned most of these links over IP and called it BitNet 2. So we made Earn 2, and we made uh, a a project whereby all the main nodes on, on the network in, for Earn would connect in a full mesh configuration over virtual links. So each core node adds a link to every other link on the backbone. And then each of these backbone nodes would have one virtual link to a U.S. university link uh, connected to the BitNet2 backbone. And then we could really see immediately after, like we started implementing in 92, 
293 was almost finished, we just had a huge dramatic improvement of service. I mean, files were flying by, there was no, no wait, no longer queues anymore, and, uh, and everything was like flying very well. The problem was that uh, at that time, really, Earn as an association, it just was basically fusing, melting into what the internet was. It was just one more service on top of TCP IP line. So the politicians started pushing to changing things around. And so eventually, amazingly enough, Earn, the Earn Association was merged with the Rare, which was the antithesis of Earn at the beginning of the 85s. And they were merged and, uh, and put together as a single association. And then uh, uh, basically... That was, that was it. There was no really need for, for having a, a dedicated backbone for Earn of any kind. Everything had been migrated. All the applications had been migrated all over the internet. And at that time, I was offered to go to Amsterdam to the RIPE uh, NCC, where Daniel and, and my Miriam uh, work now, and co-manage the RIPE NCC with Daniel Kahnberg. But that was a bit too much north for my taste. As an Italian, you know, I had moved from Italy, Italy to Paris. I moved up north where it's colder and, and, and wetter. And going up to all the way at all to Amsterdam, I didn't feel like it. So I started looking around. And what happened is that basically many of the people that used to work at the universities in the BitNet network uh, uh, organization, had, several of them had moved to this new, fantastic, incredible thing that nobody knew what it was. It was called America Online. And that was basically the next step, you know, from the ivory tower down to offering internet access to the residential markets. Because up to that point, we were only industries, companies connected to the network and not people at home could not connect to the network. And then companies like American Online, CompuServe and others were coming up and they contacted me because American Online had decided to launch the services in Europe as well. We are talking about uh, mid-95 here, okay? Early 95, mid-95. Well, thanks, Daniel, for coming on and talking through all this history with us. It was great. Thank you, Russ, and thank you, Donald, for listening so patiently. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, it, was, it was very interesting and very cool. So, all right, great. And we'll catch you next time on the History of Networking. Subscribe to the History of Networking on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.